Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. It's great to have you with us. China and the U.S. are engaged in a battle for technology supremacy involving artificial intelligence, quantum computing, high-end semiconductors, and much more. The U.S. in recent months has taken a muscular approach, investing heavily in resuscitating its domestic semiconductor industry, restricting some exports to China, and more. But how are the Chinese responding? What are they doing to enhance their own competitiveness? And what are the implications for the U.S. government and U.S. companies? We're going to discuss all that today with Kendra Schaefer. Kendra is head of technology research at Trivium China, a strategic advisory consultancy based in Beijing. She is also chief editor of the Trivium Tech Daily newsletter. Kendra, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to ask you first about ChatGPT, which is the subject of much fascination these days. The U.S. right now is in the lead developing this technology. Are the Chinese going to catch up or even surpass us? Well, uh, that's actually a really interesting question. The U.S. is in the lead in developing the technology for sure, but China is in the lead on developing regulations for AI. Um, in fact, when uh, ChatGPT uh, really did explode into the public consciousness uh, in China the same way that it exploded in the public consciousness in the United States um, and has really sparked off a new flurry of innovation, you know, amongst Chinese companies, many of whom specifically the big platform companies like Baidu and Alibaba immediately jumped on the boat uh, and started um, releasing uh, ChatGPT tools or developing new uh, generative AI tools rather. And as soon as ChatGPT came out, it was a really interesting time because regulators uh, in China were right in the middle of rolling out a series of regulations that govern what companies can and can't do with AI, how they can use data, how they're allowed to uh, engage with the public, what kind of censorship rules they have to you know, include in their algorithms and how they must you know, protect uh, public information, this kind of thing. And so... <laughs> As soon as ChatGPT came out, the Chinese regulatory community then instantly, I mean, it was shocking, within a few months had rolled out a draft regulation governing generative AI. And that what's interesting about that regulation in terms of innovation is that it has a lot of um, stipulations about what kind of training data AI companies can and cannot use in their algorithms, right? And so essentially what we're hearing on the China side is that, uh, you know, as soon as ChatGPT came out, Chinese regulators went to these companies and they said, we know you have, you know, you want to charge ahead with this technology. Uh, you want to compete with the United States. You, you really want to get into this space, but you need to wait. You need to, you need to sit on your hands for a little bit. Um, don't release any public facing tools like this until we can write a rule set that will allow you to, you know, uh, allow that to be controllable. The initial draft of those rules were unbelievably restrictive. They required Chinese AI companies to do things like um, uh, guarantee, to be able to guarantee that the data they were feeding their AIs was accurate, diverse, verifiable, right? Legally collected, this stuff. And those words, who defines what those words mean, right? But the US hasn't even gone that far. Right, right, not even a little bit. I mean, we don't even have a data privacy law. Uh, no. At the federal level, right? So we've got, I mean, we don't even have the foundation to regulate AI at all. China's much farther ahead in that. And we can come back to that in a minute if you want. But the, you know, the training data rules um, 
were very strict. And what happened was Chinese companies responded uh, during, you know, after this draft came out, they responded to regulators. There's always a commenting period for companies to kind of give their input. Companies gave their input and said, if you put the rules out this way, we're dead in the water, right? And the party is very interested in the development of AI and, and having China compete in this space. It didn't want to kneecap the companies in that way. And so the final draft was much less restrictive on training data. It basically said, you've got to do your best to ensure your data is accurate. You have to try to make sure that it's diverse and verifiable, <laughs> but it didn't, it didn't require that, right? So uh, companies now are just really just this podcast is so timely because just as a, cu a couple of days ago, now companies are going, okay, we're ready to charge forward. We've got some directives from the party in terms of what we can or can't do. So there is an interest in competing. I think we're basically going to see over the next six months to a couple of years, uh, Chinese tech platforms push forward uh, their own approaches to generative AI. So will they surpass the U.S.? <laughs> That's the ultimate question. So right now we've actually we've actually tested a couple of the beta tools that are available from uh, you know Chinese platforms, and I have to say they're just not as good <laughs> as ChatGPT. Uh, we've also read and listened to a lot of policymaker and industry experts in China talking about their own competitiveness in this space. Um, from their own domestic internal assessment, they're a couple of years behind. Part of that is simply because the is part of that's a language issue, weirdly enough, right? There's a lot of conversation about, well, where's the data corpus in Chinese that we use to train, right, these algorithms? Um, and the availability of good training data has been, you know, in Chinese has been a serious problem. Um, but there are companies making advancements in that space. There are companies making advancements in that space. And I, so they, from their own internal assessment, they're about two years behind. What I find interesting here is that I have this preconception that China is a fairly rigid society. And yet what you're saying is when it comes to regulation, they were able to move and adapt. They were very nimble. And the U.S. doesn't have that capability. You know, I actually talk about this a lot with, uh, with people overseas. China has an advantage in regulatory speed. And the reason for that is because, um, and I often say that Chinese regulators act like startups. They try to fail fast and early. And the reason that they do that and they can do that is because it's a one-party system and you don't have to argue with anybody. And, and what that lets you do is put out a temporary stopgap regulation in five minutes that you come back and edit in six months and then you edit it again in two years. And so those so regulations in China come out at a very rapid pace. They're still tracking behind technology, right? They're still playing catch up. All government no government can keep pace with, with innovation, right? So it's always quite difficult. But whereas the US, you know, in the United States, you need to have debate, you need to have consensus, you end up in a situation where if you don't get every piece of language in this giant bill, right, when it comes out, no one's going to come back and debate that for another 10 years. And so, you know, you're real, you're really stuck with what you got. Uh, and so China doesn't uh, really doesn't end up in that situation very often. So you will see, and this is really what's happened with generative AI, you will see a regulator toss out a regulatory guideline that essentially just says, 
look, this is generally the spirit through which we want companies to think about the way we want you to behave in AI. We'll get back to you on the details. Bear this in mind, we'll get back to you on the details. And then six months later, as regulators start regulating the new technology and realize where they've, they've failed or they've missed something or something's not working, they'll go back and, or that, you know, there's a loophole, they'll go back and close it or edit it. So that can give them a real advantage over Western companies, can it? In, in some cases it can. And then, you know, the disadvantage is, well, what's, what's in the regulations? The, 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 oh, the that. Dis- right, yeah, oh, that. And, the, you know, and then the, the other disadvantage, of course, um, ends up being that sometimes regulation comes out a little too fast. I think in, in that case, the U.S. does have the advantage because they've got this big open um, you know, there's a big open field where companies can kind of explore and, you know, really push boundaries. And they've got, you know, five years, 10 years of timeline before regulators come in and, and uh, clamp down on the worst, the worst outputs of those technologies. Uh, but, you know, I think it is really an open question, which, which model from that particular perspective is better, because, you know, now we're in a situation in the States where, major tech companies are doing whatever they want with our data and have been doing that for 20 or 30 years at this point. And, you know, there hasn't been enough action there in my view. The U.S. is trying to stymie Chinese advances in technology with export controls. Hmm. They put some sanctions on some chip components and exports of other sort. Is this effective? Is this limiting China in any way? Oh, man, that's the question of the year. So why don't we pull back a little bit and maybe look at what the U.S. is saying about what the intentions of the export controls actually are, right? The intention is to nominally is to prevent um, China from uh, particularly China's military from getting access to advanced uh, U.S. technologies, right? The way that those export controls are being perceived in China is wildly different. You know, what we've heard from almost every U.S. policymaker that we've, that has commented on this issue publicly, uh, you know, Yellen, Gina Raimondo, you know, Jake Sullivan, you know, uh, all of these policymakers have essentially hewed to the same line that they've, they've communicated to Beijing over and over again, which is, look, we're trying to we're only going to be imposing these export controls on a narrow band of technologies that we're not trying to economically suppress you by doing this, that this is going to be narrowly targeted, narrowly targeted, narrowly targeted. That's, that's the U.S. message on these export controls. The, the China side does not believe that at all. And in fact, it's very bizarre because I spend most of my time in the China policy conversation. And then when I kind of exit and move into the U.S. policy conversation, it's like being in two different universes, right? Here's the fundamental misunderstanding. So for China, semiconductors and artificial intelligence really lay at the heart of existential issues like food security and economic security and climate change response and emergency disaster response, right? This is because so as China's growth slows and its population, as you've probably heard, has begun to decline precipitously, right? China's policy apparatus 
is largely banking on the fact that automation and mechanization, right, these AI and robots essentially are going to improve efficiency enough that growth can be maintained with fewer resources, right? This is China's kind of idea of what technology is for. It's for industrial upgrading, how to make industry more efficient. Uh, that's what the internet is for. It's what they want to develop the metaverse for. It's what they want to develop AI for. That is the primary motivation, right? So let me give you a specific example. 60% of China's farming population is over the age of 45. Only 14% are under the age of 35, right? Young people just don't want to live in villages with few amenities, right? And nothing to do. They want to live in urban areas. So, you know, in 20 years, what you're looking at, a significant amount of the farming population ages out of the profession, right? And they're not going to be replaced by immigrants because China has no immigration policy to speak of, right? So in that case, what you need is drones and robotics, right, powered by AI and smart blockchain technologies for agricultural tracking, for, you know, crop spraying, for, for you know, developing new resistant seeds and this kind of stuff, right? Networks of smart sensors for weather, right? Weather and moisture data, all of this kind of uh, stuff that, that is ultimately AI driven. And all of that is dependent on computing power and all of that is dependent on semiconductors, right? Similar issues on climate change, et cetera. So they see these export controls as a really existential threat, not just something that applies to the military. From China's perspective, they go, you know, it, it, you can say as many times as you want that this is narrowly targeted, but what you're basically telling us is that you don't want us to economically develop. And what you're trying to do is put us in a situation where our economy cannot expand and we cannot upgrade so that the party collapses, so that, you know, we're, you know we end up in a dangerous situation, so that we are economically weak. Uh, and, and, and so these, as you can see, as you can imagine, those two conversations are just, you know, they're speaking at cross purposes. Right. But China has responded very specifically by saying, OK, micron chips, we're going to restrict those coming in from the U.S. We're going to uh, uh, stop selling you certain minerals that are needed in chip production. So they aren't just sitting and taking this from the U.S., are they? There have been a couple of responses from China so far. Those responses are heating up and are about to get very exciting, I think. But for the past three or four years, Another point to make here as well is that China doesn't see the export controls as being separate from the sanctions placed on Huawei and ZTE in 2018, right? They see this as a five-year continual campaign by the United States of economic suppression, right? So from for them, you know, on the China side, when these sanctions started to get, you know, technology sanctions really ramped up about five years ago, the China side thought, oh, it's the Trump administration, they're a little bit unpredictable. We're just going to wait it out. We're just going to, we're going to wait out this, you know, this guy will be, we're going to even see if he's in office in a few years. Maybe we don't have to worry about it. The party will still be here. We'll just wait it out. Right. And uh, they waited for a couple of years and then COVID happened. And zero COVID in China was so completely consuming and destructive that the entire policy apparatus was largely consumed with dealing with that over the last couple of years. I was there for the entirety of that experience. And it was, I can tell you, just unimaginable if you were not on the ground, right? It was just all consuming every day, right? So um, that experience, uh, you know, and then right at the end of zero COVID, these export controls come into play. So now, right, towards the end of last year, China started to think, okay, 
you know, Biden came into power and this campaign against China has not relented. In fact, it has become more intense. It appears that it will continue to get more intense and therefore just not really responding is no longer an option for us. We also now have the political um, headspace, if you will, energy to devote to figuring out how to respond. And so a couple of things have now happened. As you mentioned, number one, they took a pot shot at Micron Technologies, right? Uh, it Really in response to the U.S. kind of sanctioning and taking pot shots at, at uh, uh, Chinese technologies. They have also instituted their own export controls on two critical minerals that China uh, dominates the processing of. Uh, that is germanium and gallium. These are minerals that are related to the production of semiconductors and other electronic, uh, you know, other electronic industries, right? So there, we're, what we're looking at here is a bit of a Mexican standoff, right? The, the U.S. And, and Japan and the Netherlands uh, who have joined the U.S. in these export controls are, are you know, they, they've got their finger on the button and China's got its finger on the button. And everything that we've heard from from the China side essentially indicates that China is going to pull out the 2018 trade war playbook where they will see uh, a uh, escalation by either Japan or the Netherlands or the US and they will attempt to respond in kind. You said something tantalizing a minute ago. You said Ooh. this is about to get very exciting. Yes. Preview <laughs> where it goes. Essentially what we think is going to happen is, uh, as I just mentioned, that, that, that this kind of trade war, war playbook is going to get trotted out. I think that what China's trying to do is set up a series of policy tools for itself uh, that will allow it to respond to any kind of provocation, uh, either from Japan, the Netherlands, or the US. In the immediate near term, what we expect to have happen is this, right? If Now, bear in mind, export controls from Japan, the Netherlands, and the U.S. on semiconductor technologies, that's not a ban on the export of those technologies. It just says that companies trying to export those technologies have to apply for a license, right? China did respond. Their export controls are exactly the same. There's no ban on the export of gallium and germanium. You just have to apply for a license to get it. Right. So they've set themselves up into a situation where, let's say, the Netherlands is very strict and does not grant any licenses for export to China. Well, now China can respond and do exactly the same thing. It will simply refuse all licenses, you know, uh, for export to the Netherlands. But that also plays allies off against each other a little bit, because now you've got Japan going, man, we really need those minerals. And if they're going to block access to them, maybe we should be looser on implementation and allow a lot more of those licenses, you know, those license approvals. Right. Do you see any way for these two competitors, the U.S. and China, to climb down from this competition or is it only going to intensify? Personally, I'm, I would love to see a de-escalation. Uh, I'm not very optimistic that we're going that way, specifically for you know, the reasons that I outlined in the beginning, that what I have seen is a total, you know, talking at total cross-purposes. And there's no political will that I have heard in DC to advocate for a, a strong de-escalation. Right. There seems to be strong bipartisan consensus 
that continuing to impose ex export controls is is the way forward. Um, and so I think what Washington is trying to do is, you know, they, you know, Yellen went recently, Blinken is, you know, in communication with Chinese officials, uh, Sullivan's in communication with Chinese officials. And again, they've all kind of said the same thing again and again, which is trying to communicate to China, listen, we're going to escalate this, but, but we're really just doing it in this narrow band. So don't, you know, don't think this is a personal attack against you. You know, it's not really a slap in the face. And on the China side, their ambassadors and officials have very clearly responded by saying, that's nice, but until we see you dial back export controls, we will not change our opinion about your motivations here. So there's been lots of conversation, but there's been no progress on the fundamental sticking point, which is simply that. China says this is economic coercion, and the US says, no, it isn't. It's just a national, narrow net narrowly targeted national security issue until there is some kind of, you know, understanding reached in that arena. I think this has the potential to, you know, I, I don't see any way this does not continue to escalate. I want to ask you about a different slice of this. Sure. Much is being made in the United States about how much money is now being invested in reviving chip manufacturing in the United States. Yeah. Um, fabs are planned in any number of cities at this point in time. How does what the U.S. is putting into chips compare with what the Chinese are putting into that industry? Oh, that's very. That's a very interesting question. So, um. Just linking this back to what we were just talking about, in terms of, you know, we often get asked by our clients, what, it, how is China going to retaliate against export controls, right? And and and, but when we look overall at what China's response has been, I would say only 20, ten to twenty percent of the conversation in China has been how to hit back at the United States. I think a lot of the times when we talk about China, we're a little bit, if you'll excuse me, narcissistic. We think that. China does nothing but think about the U.S. and what to do with us. But 80% of the conversation in China has really been about how to pump up domestic chip manufacturing, right? What do we do domestically to pump up our own industry? How do we, you know, subsidize our own industries? And so over the last you know, couple of years, we've seen a significant amount of, of movement uh, in several respects. Number one, subsidies. Uh, and support policies for semiconductor manufacturers. So that's been one thing. Um, I can outline what those are in a second. Two, the state has also launched a unbelievably wide-ranging policy initiative designed to refactor the country's innovation system. What I mean by that is how do, you know, everything from primary school STEM education to, you know, research laboratories, right, that are university or state affiliated all the way at the top end, right? How do we bring every element of the, of the innovation chain into closer collaboration with each other so they share resources, so they're working towards state goals, so they, so they, so they. So there's, there's that element of it as well. And then three, we've seen a, a anti-corruption drive, a cleaning of house uh, in the halls of power uh, in the scientific community, right? Because, you know, China's gone back and forth over the last couple of decades on anti-corruption drives, but, uh, you know, corruption in many levels of government is, is endemic. Uh, and that is also true with academic and scientific research funding, uh, particularly in the semiconductor space. And that means things like uh, if you want to get your project funded 
it's not really a meritocracy. It's about who you know. And if you'll excuse my French, who's butt you're kissing at the, the Ministry of Science and Technology, right? And it matters, you know, there's a lot of kickbacks. There's a lot of, you know, research disbursements that don't do, you know, the funding just gets wasted and nothing actually happens with it. So um, corruption, uh, refactoring the innovation system, and then also subsidies. And I'll, I'll briefly, those subsidies range from anything from, you know, uh, giving, you know, chip design funding where between 30 to 70% of the, of project costs are subsidized, right. Um, EDA R and D funding, right. Just giving, giving cash rewards to companies that meet new revenue targets. So if you've never made 2 billion renminbi before and you're a chip manufacturer, and now you make 2 billion renminbi, your city government will hand you a million renminbi for free. There you go. Congratulations. Right. That kind of stuff. Talent is important to innovation as well. Yes. I'm wondering if you think the United States is in a way aiding and abetting Chinese innovation through its immigration policies, which are resulting in many cases in top Chinese-born but U.S.-educated scientists going back to China and doing groundbreaking work. You know, this is such a touchy topic, right? Because on one end of the spectrum, you have, we don't let Chinese talent come to the United States <laughs> and learn things and participate in our own, you know, our own innovation system. And on the other end of that, you have, you know, it's open season on American technology and anybody comes over here, grabs our research and, and scampers off. Right. Uh, you know, and, and I personally think that that is a matter of of opinion and honestly is a very politicized question at this point. Right. We start talking about that and it's not an issue of of the numbers anymore. It's whether or not, you know, um, you're very hawkish on China or you're very dovish on China. I, I, I personally tend to think that uh, in general, not only with research and talent, but also with Chinese technologies in general, like 5G, I think the same principle applies, which is you need safety and security guardrails that are not directly discriminatory to any country. You need safety and security guardrails that work no matter what. And if the, you know, and then, you know, keep the door open to the best of your ability while maintaining, you know, safety within those guardrails. If you were in charge of U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis China. Oh, boy. What would it look like? Whew, that's a huge question. A little power trip for you here. A little power trip for me. You know what? I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. Uh, so uh, in terms of tech policy, I mean, so I advocate uh, specifically for a um, ag country agnostic approach, right? We're dealing with a couple of critical issues with China. Number one, a distrust for Chinese hardware. Uh, and two, a distrust for Chinese data collection practices. I mean, those are really have been the two key elements that, um, uh, you know, have concerned U.S. policymakers over the last several years. And the argument essentially in the halls of power is, should we target, um, you know, block China from entering U.S. networks, specifically Chinese technologies from entering U.S. networks? Should we prevent Chinese e-commerce platforms or Chinese social networks from collecting the data of Americans, right? And, and, and on one side of the conversation is, should we target China with a lot of these rules? On the other side of the conversation is, well, we don't have any rules at all for anybody, frankly, right? 
And so my, my number one first day in office, the first thing I would do is, is, you know, roll out a data privacy law for Americans, right? That protects Americans from data exfiltration from anyone, right? And start to write the, the, the foundation of the rules that keep us safe so that we are not dealing with adversaries on a whack-a-mole basis. I think it's crazy because, at the, you know, who the adversary is changes every decade, right? And so, you know, next decade, it's somebody else. And next decade, it's somebody else. And oh, now it's Russia. And oh, now it's these guys. And it's Iraq. And it's Afghanistan. So, you know, trying to target a specific adversary on this kind of, you know, oh, TikTok is the problem. No, TikTok is not the problem. The problem is that we don't have a structure of rules that allows us to define how American data must be stored, kept, transferred, secured, right? Um, so this just leaves us open for the next adversary to walk in the door or from, you know, non-state sponsored adversaries or from, you know, bad actors on our own soil to use our data and uh, our technologies in inappropriate ways. So uh, my own policy approach would involve, you know, focusing on creating a system that is sustainable over time, uh, that is focused on, on protecting Americans from everyone, uh, including themselves, frankly. Andrew Schaefer, head of technology research at Trivium China and chief editor of the Trivium Tech Daily Newsletter, Thanks a lot for being with us, sharing your insights and, uh, and your hopes for the future. My pleasure. And thank you to all of you for listening to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. I hope you'll join us again. In the meantime, take care.